Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Indeed. We scholars like to think science has all the answers, but in the end, it's just a bunch of unprovable nonsense. So now what? The great and has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we are going to have the effective altruism boy wonder, Will McCaskill, on this podcast. Do you think all of our Patreon supporters are going to leave us once this episode comes out? It's a. <laughs> it's not. It's an actual worry. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Okay. The wonderful thing about utilitarianism is that you can sort of take your best guess at what maximizing would actually be. And in this case, getting the word out about Will McCaskill um, is made possible by the generosity of our Patreon uh, <laughs> subscribers. And so... Uh, so, uh, But so, now, once the episode is out, unless they think we're going to have him again... <laughs> we could... Well, you know, there's Peter Singer's on deck. That's right. If if Will's the boy wonder, <laughs> Peter Singer is bad man. We're just going to become like a Silicon Valley effective altruism <laughs> That's like, right. PR. But we need to get a stingy Kantian, like the kind that not even I would listen to. Like just one who's like really concerned about what this word meant in German when Kant said it in a, some letter to somebody else. Yeah, yeah that'll, we, keep, we, that'll get the Patreon supporters all fired <laughs> up. He, speaking of PR, he is very good. PR for that for that movement. He doesn't sound like a robot at all. No, no. Uh, it's amazing how artificial intelligence has, has made strides. <laughs> like, do you think that was like the the what do you call it test? <laughs> the Turing test. The Turing test. That was, yeah. We had the whole time we thought it was we thought Will was a human being. Um, it, it was like ex machina. Like we fell in love with him. That was the thing. <laughs> It should be a regular segment, the things that you get wrong about Will McCaskill. Like, we should just, like, always always just refer to him as something that he's completely not. Well, uh, his identity is completely fractured by his commitments, so I'm always right whenever I, I uh, misidentify <laughs> It's Borg... It's Borg... Borgesian? 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 Borg... Uh, yeah, the, that last one, I'll go with Borgesian, yeah. <laughs> okay, so before that, in our first segment, uh, we're of course going to do our famous and really <laughs> mind-blowing segment, Guilty Confessions. But first, 
with a little mini dilemma that I thought might be interesting for our listeners. It was, I go out to Grand Haven, Michigan um, to be the narrator for my audio book that will be coming out. Um, yeah, and while I was there, I, I met up with a listener named Matt, had a good time with him, so that was that was fun. But anyway, I was narrating the audiobook, which was not as terrifying an ordeal as I was as I had worried. I mean, I I thought I'm either going to be really bad at it and it's I'm just not going to be able to do it or I uh or I'm going to hate my book <laughs> as I'm reading it. And well, I certainly had some problems with it. I didn't hate it. In fact, I, oh, I, I it went mildly poorly and you only kind of hated it. <laughs> no, I mean, I yeah, I don't know how uh according to the engineer director um, I he said I was good for an author, but I don't know how good. <laughs> good for an author, yeah. <laughs> like good looking for a Jew, like? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so I don't know what the bar is for that. But were they yelling out instructions like, "Okay, now this time, like you're in pain." Like, okay, now do it like you've just came come back from a shopping spree at Saks Fifth Avenue and you're in the 1950s. <laughs> no. I, no, but <laughs> yeah, no, they weren't, it, you know, I was like, I, there's not that many voices in my, <laughs> in my book, but when there are, like I had to do like Shakespeare, talk about something I was worried about, like me doing Shakespeare, but you know, like I, th- I thought it was, I thought it was fine. I'm looking forward to it coming out and people giving me shit for it. Anyway, so towards the end of the book, something that I... I had been worried about, but didn't realize the extent of my worry until it was the day before. I realized that I have this rap battle at the end um, between Loaded Lux and Calico. Loaded Lux, unfortunately, never got back to me about uh, <laughs> about the lyrics, so I could only quote. Now, actually, that's good. It turns out that's very good because I was I had to I was very limited in how much I could quote from his lyrics but in a couple places there were lyrics one by him and one by another battle rapper that had the n-word in it you know with the a at the end (laughs) and i know know the word of which you speak yes and so what am i gonna do about that like i'm i gotta speak it and it was pretty essential to the to the meaning of what i was trying to get across so am I just going to say it? Right. Am I going to say it like a white Jew r- rapping? And then, you know, like if I could do it well, but that was out of the question. I mean, that was some of my, like my, maybe my worst narrating uh, was of me trying to do like a battle rap. Right. The In an ideal world, the solution would be if the rappers themselves could recite those lyrics, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, like okay. and and which it wouldn't be impossible. They're on YouTube, like right. So I could quote it from YouTube, except that I don't think that they it's the rights. The yeah, rights. The, the lawyers care more about rights than about. Yeah, and it's impossible because I actually like tried to track down who has control of the rights and stuff like that from the battles, from the rap battles on YouTube, for the battle production company that that does them and. Like just it was it was really impossible for me. Uh, maybe somebody else could have figured it out, but I did try it, and I spent a while doing it. 
So, I even tried. I even was really trying to track down like who, who would own the rights to this stuff, and it's completely unclear. Yeah, it's not even clear to me that the that there's a DVD. I think right. So like, definitely someone owns the rights to the perf- to the footage of the performance, yeah. but the lyrics themselves, like, are those things? Yeah. If there are any lawyers who who listen, like, yeah, I'm curious because you can find the lyrics on any number of lyrics websites. Yeah, but Basic Books was just like you can't quote more than a tiny little excerpt if you don't have the rights for them right and i don't know if they were being paranoid but i don't think so anyway so what did i what do i do like in that situation i need to be able to get it across my first instincts was i should just say it like you know that's what it is that's how they would read it in the book so why not say it but then the more I actually pictured me doing it, the, the less I liked that idea. Because you know that I would just like sni- take a little audio snippet. <laughs> I would just, just lead off every episode tweet. with it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> completely out of context. Come on. Uh, yeah, VBW no context. We'd yeah. have a field day with that. So, so uh, I texted you. And I asked the engineer and the engineer and the director said that, you know, he would talk to the people there, but nobody really knew. You need, you should have just asked Kanye West for permission. I reached out to him, but he he didn't give me permission either. So like everybody sort of naturally coalesced around saying it, but bleeping it. Yeah. And I, well, I, I just said a bleep. Like the saying yeah. part is, I think, the most interesting part of this conversation because I think that it's a natural. Although I also suggested just saying the word nickel, but, but that <laughs> that might defeat you just the another lost nickel. <laughs> uh, there's uh, the nickel. But I was assuming when I said bleep, I meant as you're saying it, pause during the the time that that word comes up, and then just insert a bleep. <laughs> But that's a little weird. No, that's... I think you have to, like, any bleep, you usually get, like, the first little bit of the word. Oh, then, so there's, like, mm, beep. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, it could be, like, motherfucker or something like that, even though I say fuck other places in the book, but... Um, yeah, yeah. So I think they have to... Which is weird. I mean, that's such a strange thing. Like, you're saying it, you know what the word is, but it's bleeped, so, like, it's it's... You know, there is something that doesn't seem right about that to me, but it yeah. seems like maybe least bad of all the different options. Right, right. Um, if you had the proper rhythm and cadence, my suggestion was to just strategically uh, pause during that word. Um, yeah. But uh, but uh, your rap skills probably just aren't on point like that. <laughs> I, I like. I feel like even for me, I did it badly. And although you could, <laughs> I could have done more takes of it. You know, I I just sort of wanted it to be over. You know, <laughs> I wanted to move on. It was also it's very close to the end of the book, and I I was pretty much I was done narrating. You know, right. so like I just wanted to move on. But if I could do it over again, I would. I, I would do those line I would do those a couple of those lines again because I in my mind it is going to be really really bad like and the engineer was like a 
ex-DJ, and so, you know, <laughs> he, he, he didn't say anything about it afterwards. I think he was just like, you, well. <laughs> I would have been laughing my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> so you think I went with the right option? Except I think that's the only option. I, yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, say about just actually saying? getting Loaded Lux, like, in the studio, like, to do it for your audiobook like that would have been the ideal option not even just copying youtube like just saying like and now here's loaded lux like that would have been the ideal option right but that he's not flying out to grand haven michigan that the the second best option is getting samuel jackson uh to yeah. to read it <laughs> third best option is to bleep yourself fourth best option is to just say it but then you would have had to like kind of audio footnote like i might just say like I'm just going to use the N word, like because it's part of the text. Um, you would say it. Uh, I I don't I don't know what I would do, but I think that yeah. that would be. It, it seems not unreasonable to to read the text as it is written, in in the same way that like when you read Huck Finn, you know right. I don't know what they do nowadays if they read aloud still, like you know when you take turns reading. Yeah, <clears throat> I don't know that we ever took turns reading Huck Finn aloud because it was a little bit later, but you can imagine that that's the similar kind of dilemma. And there, there's a way in which you could just say, well, that's the text. You know, this, it reminds me of that debate we, or discussion. It wasn't a debate, really, long ago when Eliza was in To Kill a Mockingbird yeah, right. at the play. And they nixed it at the last second because they were cutting out all the N-words and the playwright wouldn't allow them to do it unless they were going right. to use the word. And, you know, and it was... So they so they ended up not doing the play and I remember thinking that was sort of a shame because the whole po the power of that text comes from the fact that this is how people were and this is what people were doing but I remember we got that email from a listener really right. long thoughtful email saying I, if I'm in that audience and I see mm -hmm. kids and I even get the slightest hint as is probably likely that some of the kids aren't taking this seriously what's happening right then that's going to be really hurtful yeah. for me and yeah and, and and hard to hard to take and you know i totally get that yeah I, and none of what we're saying is is that w we have no problem saying it but the pc police are gonna like come after us like that's not the issue <laughs> like no fuck, fuck that no i like, felt uncomfortable just... saying it you know again not because the, I thought the PC police, I think right. there is for better and for worse and maybe for better on balance, just right now, just an undeniable poison <laughs> to that word that yeah. it just yeah, can't, yeah. you know, that, that we talked about that Lenny Bruce, that old Lenny Bruce bit about trying to drain the poison out of it. And I like that idea in theory. I really do. Like, you know, drain the poison, yeah. make it not a word, but it just doesn't seem like that can happen for whatever reason. Yeah, I think within within a segment of of the black sort of population in the U.S., that's happened. But right. within very but I mean white people restricted guidelines. Yeah. yeah. But even like older civil rights era black people, you know, like have don't don't like that. And I'm per per you yeah. love Pulp Fiction. It's like your favorite movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you think about when Quentin Tarantino is... Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of jarring shit in that movie. That's about the most jarring. 
Like and I, and and I think that it's because there is something about the way in which somebody says something and the intention behind it. Maybe because Quentin Tarantino is such a bad actor, but also the fact that he gave himself those words to say. Like, you know, I don't have a problem. You know, art is art. It's just like it, 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 there's real discussion to be had, but like him in that role giving it to him to say in that way is jarring to me. So what's interesting about it, that's almost, you could look at it as a little bit of a cop out. They make a big deal about the fact that he's really good friends with Jules. That's why Jules yeah. is going there. And yeah. in a completely gratuitous, yeah. like hypothetical scene, they show yeah. that his wife the, is black. Yeah. And yeah. like just <laughs> absolutely no reason for that it doesn't flow with that like it's really the only sort of because that i think is probably the best segment in that movie the bonnie situation (laughs) situation and and yeah like there's just no reason for that sort of hypothetical what if she came home right except to say that she he's married to a black woman so so it's okay that he says that word in my head canon the hypothetical is that quentin tarantino's just been lying about having a black wife so that he (laughs) can save say those things (laughs) Um, which reminds me one day we will do a whole Pulp Fiction episode yeah I think this we've been planning it for six years but since Tamler has veto power one day (laughs) all right should we do our guilty confessions let's do it I think you should go first no 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 (laughs) (laughs) we know how that goes fine okay so this is this is really hard to confess, but I, I, I guess I owe you one. Um, so not this last time I was traveling, but the time before, I I put an auto reply for my email <laughs> that said I apologize for the delayed response, but I'll be traveling and I will have limited access to e- to email. <laughs> In fact. My access to email wasn't all that limited. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. No, that's not my real one. <laughs> but it is true. It's pretty much true of every time I've put that. I think, the, I think, so, I think like someone tweeted out, yeah. that's the biggest lie in all of academia. Yeah, but it feels so fucking good. It's so good. Yeah. And sometimes it's true, depending on, you know, I don't want to do a conceptual analysis of limited but you know <laughs> sometimes so this is as close as i'm going to get to a real one so you can fuck me over to get revenge first year eliza's born right around is two, uh, 2004 she's born you could just through these online pharmacies that were popped up around that time you could just get vicodin you could just get norco you know like the best kind oh, of vicodin god uh, all you had to do is like fax them something that said like you hurt your back once or something and they would just send you pretty much unlimited supplies. So first year Eliza was born and I don't even know if my wife knows this, but pretty much every day or if not just every day I was just <laughs> on Vicodin, you know, and I, and I get that like, especially in these times with the op- opioid it's, it's like, epidemic. It's like- but it but it is like Disneyland for your mind, you know. It's like it, right. It's in 
you know, I have, I'm lucky enough to be wired in a way that when I, you know, a year later, when it became a little more difficult to get, I just said, okay, fuck this. I'm not getting it. I'm not just doing this anymore. Plus it was also like, I realized I wasn't taking enough to keep up with the you know whatever the you get used to it what's that called right tolerance (laughs) tolerance yeah so um so i was able to quit it i know a lot of people aren't but given that i have to say like it was great like i would come (laughs) home i would come home and eliza you know she's just like like six months a delightful child baby and like just like chill out with some Vicodin and hang out with Eliza because Jen was working evenings then, and so it would really just be me and her. The only time it was it was really bad and maybe irresponsible. I was away at a, for a trip, and then I met a friend and just had a really bad night of drinking. Um, and drinking and Vicodin don't often go all that well. Yeah, if you yeah. do, says, says it on the label. One or both to excess. <laughs> uh, you can have a few drinks in Vicodin. That's that's perfect. That, that, that's like, called activating it. Yeah, that's exactly. what I call it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. But um, but that night was really bad. And then I come home and I'm taking care of Eliza. And I am just, I put her in the Jolly Jumper and I am just <laughs> vomiting, just in, just the, like, oh my all God. over there. And I remember, I can picture her right now. She's just laughing at me as I'm vomiting over the toilet in her Jolly Jumper. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm just going to call you Bubs from now on. I'm just picturing you on the couch with drool coming down. <laughs> just quick question. Did you like not shit for a year? <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, yeah. That was an issue. Yeah, that sucks, and it feels like there should be a way around that, and there doesn't seem to be. Uh, fuck medicine. Fuck Western science. And yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, jokes aside, like, yeah, shit, it sucks because some people really, you know, obviously do get addicted, and and it's it's easy to see it's easy to see why like there, but for the grace, like if that shit was available over the counter. But. I mean, withdrawal sucked. But, you know, like, I think some people are just wired. Like, I have this, like, close to addiction, but I can always jump ship when I realize this is bad for me. Yeah, drugs are like, drugs are like donuts to me. If they're there. Yeah. Like, I'll I'll (laughs) eat them. Like, I'll eat them. If they're not, I'm not, like, going out to Dunkin' Donuts. Like, I'm not, like. (laughs) I'll suck your dick. (laughs) <laughs> what'd you say motherfucker yeah no i i broke my ankle once i didn't know it was broken um i thought it was a sprain i had sprained it many times so i go to a doctor this was when i was a postdoc and he x-rays me he's like you know you broke your ankle and i and i was like oh shit i just thought it was you know i've sprained it plenty of times from basketball and he goes i'm gonna give you something it's a narcotic um, <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me like a fat bottle of Vicodin with a refill. Yeah. And uh it, this again is right before my daughter was born, but I was I would play Xbox I would play Halo on Xbox with my friends and have a glass of wine and pop some Vicodin. And yeah. it, it it is like when people ask me to describe what my paradise would be like, yeah. it would be <laughs> it would be, you know, circa two thousand three, <laughs> two thousand four, Halo, Vicodin and wine. Oh, and what I was gonna say is Vicodin and playing online poker, like it, it could be a little boring to play solid, tight, <laughs> aggressive poker, you know, like, you know, but just so you win money. But not on Vicodin. It was great. <laughs> you know, like Vicodin and a couple and a few beers like and then like you know then my daughter was born so now it's not poker it's it's her but it was like oh it's oh that's good too 
same same risk involved um yeah. uh yeah don't do drugs sorry do we drugs. all we probably all know i don't know i like I, people who were actually addicted and a lot of people who've overdosed so so like it's i'm usually libertarian about this stuff but like there's a good reason to regulate that shit especially that stuff because yeah. i mean this is the it's sneaky it's super sneaky it's... all right my guilty confession uh I, uh, when I arrived here at Cornell in, in 2006, I bought a house for the first time, had my own piece of land. Nice. And, uh, master of all you survey. Master of all. <laughs> Sometimes, even though the bathroom is closer to me, I just go outside and pee in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> I just, I have a little deck. And there is just nothing like peeing on my own land. It just I feel I feel close to nature. I feel like this is this is mine. This is how this is how humans were meant to be, male humans were meant to pee. It just feels good. It feels what, good. what do your neighbors hope, think of that? They it's it, they're far enough away that they can't see me. Oh, um, nice. Believe me, I try. I'm waving. <laughs> Look at me, I'm peeing. Hey Bill, Nancy, check out this stream. Yeah, that's right. Do you take dumps out there too? No, no, I don't. I've never taken a dump anywhere other than the toilet. I don't know how people do that. My knees just don't You've work. Never that gone way. camping somewhere with no toilets? No, never. All right, all right. Um, we'll be right back with M- Will McCaskill. Yeah. That was so fucking long. It was. So we were just long. rambling too. 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 Nothing to do when the tension gets too thick for my sober mind to cut through. It just wants in the blue. Nothing to do. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, at this point, we'd like to thank everybody um, for all your support. Uh, like we said last time, it's been six years. I never would have predicted that it would last six years, but it is really, really... Um, mainly <laughs> causally connected to the fact that we have such great listeners people who write us people who support us um if you would like to get a hold of us email us verybadwizards at gmail.com you can tweet to us at verybadwizards at peas at tamler you can join the discussions the lively discussions on facebook.com slash verybadwizards or reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards for that subreddit um get some in-depth discussion with other listeners always smart um always interesting 
And you can follow us on Instagram as well at the Very Bad Wizards account. Uh, you can support us in more tangible ways by going to our verybadwizards.com slash support page. Um, and there you will find the various ways in which you can support us. There's actually a donate tab now. Fireside, our, our hosts, has a, a dedicated page where you can go uh, donate to our Patreon. Uh, you can give us a one-time PayPal donation. You can shop on Amazon, which is always great, through our link. And like I just said, you can go to our Patreon page. Thank you so much to all those people who sign up for even the smallest of regular contributions. If you get value from what we do, we really appreciate it. You certainly don't have to give us money, but that is one way that that we uh, appreciate you showing appreciation. Um, and, and we, we uh, have I, content coming out, yeah? Yeah, like a, what I can only imagine will be a two to three hour bonus <laughs> episode with... Jesse Graham and Natalia Washington, uh, Utah. Natalia's psych- a philosopher. She's a philosopher at Utah, and and, um, and Jesse's the psychologist. Who's and been Jesse's a psychologist. Jesse has been a guest on Very Bad Wizards way back. I think it was episode eighteen. Yeah. Um, and we are going to talk about Twin Peaks season three. So, and that should be up. I don't know in uh, in a week or so after this drops. So. Yeah, if you uh, if you if you haven't seen it, you should see it because it's one of it's maybe the greatest work of art in the last fifty years, and it is fascinating to talk about. I, I also might do, and I don't know, maybe I'll tack it on at the end of an episode if you agree. Um, but my daughter and I have been talking about it for like a year, over a year now. To tell Eliza to start her own damn podcast. No, I know, <laughs> yeah. and so I might put a little conversation. Uh, between her and me about it too somewhere i'm not sure where um so yeah but that'll definitely come on patreon very shortly we sorry to bother you like we just never got a chance to see it again yeah apparently it might be re-released i just saw boots riley just tweeted that it was coming back to theaters oh Um, good so so i think we might get a chance to see it again um i given that tamler is is going outside of the relationship to record bonus content which i'm all for for the record (laughs) um i i was just telling tamler i would love to talk to a an academic who loves hip-hop as much as i do and for bonus content so reach out if you're one of those um the last thing i'm going to say is that we've been for years now thinking about just putting together a quick little survey just to hear to learn who listens to us and now that we have so many listen listeners i am a little bit curious as to what sort of the political orientation breakdown is of our listeners and we can include really dumb questions how many of you white front front to back or is that long form piece of uh, journalism that that you linked to on uh, your twitter the other day, the other that, day. That how many men get into the bathtub on their hands and knees the the pictures the drawings in that the were. drawings were golden <laughs> so uh so anyway thank you all um uh, for all your support and uh we look forward to hearing from you and without further ado the one true scotsman Okay, we are here with Will McCaskill, and our listeners have been asking us to have you on for a while now. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. 
So we're going to focus most of our discussion today on the question of moral uncertainty, which you've written about. Um, but could you just start out giving us a brief introduction to the movement of effective altruism and your involvement with it? Great. So effective altruism is a movement that's about using your time or your money as effectively as possible to try and make the world a better place. So if you have some money that you want to give to charity, how do you do that to benefit other people by as much as possible? Or if you're thinking, what career should I pursue? What, you know, what's the career where you can have the biggest positive impact on the world? And this is a movement that's philosophy, like a lot of philosophers working on it. Also, people engage in like empirical research to figure out what are the best charities or career paths. And there are typically a few cause areas that we champion above all. One is global health and development. Uh, second is the elimination of factory farming, and the kind of worst excesses of animal suffering there. And then the third is preservation of the long run future of humankind, and in particular working on reducing risks of human extinction. And the general idea of effective altruism has been an idea that I've helped to promote and also work through over um, quite a number of years now, both in theory and as far as I can in practice. Tell us about the practice. What have you committed yourself to do? Yeah, so my first big commitment I made was financial. Uh, so I decided originally to give 10% of whatever I earned uh, for the rest of my life. Um, but then, you know, I thought about it more and um, went further than that, decided to um, just kind of cap my income at uh, what at the time was about £20,000 post-tax. That's now about £25,000 um, post-tax. Uh, and just say, look, I'm really pretty happy on that amount of money. That's about the median income in the UK. So if I think, oh, well, I need more money than that, then, well, what about all the people who are so much poorer? And in fact, even on that amount of money, I'm still in the richest 2% of the world's population. And anything I earn above that, I just donate to wherever I think is most effective. Did you just make it that number so nobody could accuse you of being the one percent? Uh, yeah, did I just do the math. <laughs> yeah, I just really wanted to <laughs> sneer the people. I'm actually in the one point one percent, and so uh, I can really sneer at all those um, higher paid professors who are um, who the Occupy protesters are, should be campaigning against. You're very young. Uh, are I, I take it you don't have a family yet? Are you married? Uh, yeah, I don't have a family. I mean, I have a partner. Um, uh -huh. uh, at the moment, you know, I don't particularly intend to have a family. It's not a commitment that I won't have one. Um, I do have various conditions in this commitment, um, such that, you know, if I had a kid, for example, or many kids, I would um, increase the amount of money that I was living on. So, you know, £25,000 is a good amount for me. But if I was to have a kid, I don't want to, you know, impose undue sacrifices on the kid as well. So I'd increase that by something like six or seven thousand pounds if I was with another partner, or more than that if I was a single parent. This movement has touched a nerve, both in on the positive side and also on the negative side. So it's inspired a lot of people. I know on my campus I was teaching the singer article and then all of, I'm I'm walking to class and I and I see this new student group effective altruism. So mm -hmm. it has inspired a lot of adherence. It's organized a lot of people. Um and then it's also touched a nerve on 
the negative side, there have been some ardent critiques of effective altruism, people who see it as almost a threat. Why do you think people have responded that way on the negative side? What, what about the movement do you think has touched a nerve? Right, yeah, I think there's two reasons for that. So I should say we actually get less criticism than I would expect, um, given the nature of what we're doing. Um, but we definitely get some. And I think there's two reasons. So one is just we're making it very salient how much good you can do with your time and money. And it's really a vast amount. It's an amount such that I think it's really pretty incontrovertible that um, individuals in rich countries have a pretty strong obligation to use at least a significant part of their resources um, to try and make the world better as well as they can. And obviously that's not a message that people particularly want to hear because it means you've now got to you know, give away some of your money or make significant career <laughs> plans. The other side are people who just think the particular things that we're choosing to focus on are misconstrued. Um, so within poverty, for example, we focus a lot on global health because this is something that firstly has a great track record over the last 60 years. It's also something you can have a lot of evidence to show it's doing a lot of good. And I think some of the aid skeptical worries just don't apply as much. Um, then, you know, focusing on factory farming, reducing extinction risks too. But there are some people who just think, wow, this is totally wrong. Um, what you should really be doing is overthrowing capitalism, for example. And any action that you're doing to say, well, we can make the world better in um, perhaps these kind of more marginal ways, um, that's just in some sense kind of pandering to the bourgeoisie, making you feel like you're making some sort of moral progress, whereas really you're not tackling um, the very core of the issue, which is private ownership of property. Um, now, I mentioned kind of, you know, overthrowing capitalism. There's various other things that you could plug into that black box of kind of what you should really be focusing on is X. Um, though that is, I think, among the most common. And there, it's again, just not really surprising that we're going to get criticism here because we're saying, well, this is what we think is most important. And if you've already invested a lot of time into some cause area that is not the one we claim to be most important, well, it's pretty natural that you'll respond by being like, well, fuck you. Um, and so that's kind of why I'm surprised that we don't get more criticism, in fact. So both, you think, are, both criticisms stem from a place that is in some sense disingenuous or self-serving. And the first, it's, it's I don't want to give up cable, I don't want to give up my iPhone. And the second, it's I don't want to waste the time that I've been trying to organize my Marxist radical group or, or whatever it is. Is that a worry about effective altruism that it often responds this way to criticism, sort of explaining them away as disingenuous or bad faith on the part of the people making the critiques? Yeah, so I do, um, I do have a view which is kind of against meta-arguments. So I think if you give me an argument and I say, well, I don't believe that argument because you're biased because of X, Y, Z, I think that's just generally a very bad move in arguments because you can always come up with a bias for someone or whatever. Um, and then I think in the case, um, I think in the case of, well, I don't want to give my money away. I just think there, the, maybe that's my one exception or something, because I think the, the kind of bias is so strong there. It's like just so obvious that you have a, 
um, a vested interest in one side of the argument being correct. That's the surprising part in teaching ethics. The surprising part is the degree to which people are very clear about the source of that objection. Yeah, it yeah. really is. I don't want. I don't want to feel guilt. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't think that what what you're making me feel is right. Because yeah. I think that that the other objections about the particular strategy that you're using to combat suffering or to maximize welfare take it at face value and then it's an empirical question yeah um, presumably what the what the best strategy and i haven't known at least anybody that embraces either utilitarianism or effective altruism to to not just simply say well then sure like mm -hmm. we're open to the we're open to the thing that will maximize welfare yeah I, like that's pretty clear yeah if that's, that's a communist revolution then that's a, then it's a communist right. re revolution <laughs> yeah. yeah and it, it would be hard to know how but yeah yeah and that is exactly how i feel and there's been a bunch of things where we really have changed our views so um i mean one is just people say well you know you just focus too much on me what's measurable on short term um, effects if you're looking at, say, cost to save a life or other health metrics. I basically think that's right now, um, despite such an early emphasis on it. And I tend to think the things the most important are things extremely hard to measure because they're like influencing the very long run future of civilization, the you know, vast numbers of people who will exist in the future rather than the um, large but much smaller number of people who will um, live today. Um, a second worry is perhaps the emphasis on earning to give as well that we this idea that uh you mentioned in an earlier episode of deliberately entering a high-paying career in order to um donate a lot of money where where tamler where tamler confused you with a rich invested yeah where i you confused me with um yeah matt wagi i thought you were maybe making some some subtle joke about how utilitarianism uh ignores the separateness of persons I just tweet, tweet I, me, I, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. That's definitely what I was doing. It was very meta. Yeah, uh, and and you're you're one of the few people who got that. It, yeah. uh, most people just thought I made a careless mistake. Yeah, no, it was beautiful. Yeah. Then um, I think when you corrected the mistake, you also called him Matt Page. Um, but uh, <laughs> I won't go. Uh, people will be scholars will be puzzling over that one for years. <laughs> Yeah, I was. Um, I found that joke a little bit harder to to see through. I'm still. I'm still working <laughs> on it. Well, you're young. You're young. Yeah. You know, okay. So you have time. My next. It's my next research project. Um, uh, but yeah. So, but I think some of the arguments we used for that are actually like incorrect. So uh, one classic one was this idea that if you enter the charity sector, well, you're just displacing someone else who would have worked there otherwise. But if you're earning to give, then you're displacing, sure, another financier or whatever, but someone who wouldn't have otherwise been donating as much. Um, and that idea that, like, well, you enter the charity sector, you're just displacing someone else, I think that just doesn't really work. And I think that was, uh, I certainly was kind of naive on just supply and demand economics there. And so... Um, I still think that this can be a good option for many people, but it's something that we've like really mitigated as a view, or certainly I've mitigated as a view very significantly from many years ago. Um, and so, yeah, in, in general, very extremely open to um, being completely wrong about the, our current best guesses about 
you know, how we can do as much good as possible. So I think there's a third objection that one that has been made to effective altruism that and it's on the question of moral uncertainty. And here you've talked about the uncertainty in what the effective course of action will be for an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this paper, you also talk about uncertainty as to what moral theories are true and how to incorporate that uncertainty into moral decision-making. Could you give us a brief Cliff Notes version of your position in that paper? Absolutely. So, yeah, decisions in the face of empirical uncertainty or uncertainty about matters of fact all the time. So if I'm speeding around a um, corner, well, why is it wrong to drive really fast around a blind blind corner? It's not because you know that you're going to hit anybody. It's because you think there's some chance you'll hit somebody. And if you did, then that would be extremely wrong. So we look at the probabilities of different outcomes and how good or, in this case, bad they would be. And you take a kind of average of the likelihood of something happening and how good or bad it would be, and you come to a kind of compromise option, which decision theorists call kind of maximizing expected value. Um, and what I'm doing in the paper is arguing, well, we should do use that same sort of reasoning in the model case as well. So rather than having what I call the football fan model of moral decision-making, where you just say, well, I'm a utilitarian or libertarian or Marxist or whatever, and then figure out what follows given that kind of overall worldview. Instead, you think, well, how likely do I find each of these different positions? And then given a certain action, how um, good or bad would this action be given those different moral views? And then again, you take this kind of average Um, between likelihood of the different model views and how good or bad the action would be given those different model views, and then choose the action that has is the best compromise, or again in this case, what has um, what maximizes expected value or expected choice worthiness. And an instance of this is to think about, say, um, decision whether to uh, eat some chicken or eat a vegetarian option. And you might think, well, it's probably the case that animals don't matter morally. Suppose you think that's your most likely view. Maybe you've even considered it at quite some length. So you think, if that's true, then, you know, I should eat the chicken because I would prefer that. But you think, but I'm not sure about that. I'm not completely certain. There's some chance that uh, the vegetarians are right, the animal welfare folks, singer, and so on. And if so then it would be extremely wrong to eat the chicken. Um, I'd be causing a huge amount of suffering that would be just as bad as if that suffering were caused on a human. And so, if you were to apply the sort of maximizing expected um, value or maximizing expected choiceworthiness sort of reasoning in this case, then you would think, well, it's only a small amount that I'm going to gain by choosing the chicken over the vegetarian option if it is the case that animals don't matter. Whereas there's a huge amount morally at stake if animals do matter. So even though I think it's you know less likely that animals do matter morally, still I ought, all things considered, to choose the, to choose the vegetarian option. That's the kind of safe bet morally, given my uncertainty about what's morally the case. Can I ask, so I really 
like enjoy this topic. But mm-hmm. my like in some ways I enjoy it because of the discomfort that it gives me that stems not so much from the content of your claims, but rather from this the step of evaluating the likelihood of truth of theories. Mm-hmm. And you I think here you briefly mention it or or maybe in something else that I was reading about the fear that that this theory itself will will need to be evaluated in the in a meta theoretic context of other theories mm-hmm. and it it see, it seems so so foreign to me to start evaluating at the theory level and it's not rational but there is this fear of infinite regress of evaluating theories and mm-hmm. with increasingly unlikely ways to determine the truth maybe that's the concrete question there what determines that how how could you step pop out of the normative ethical level and decide how to balance the truth condition what what are the truth conditions for normative theory to be to be true is it a thing which it may not be and this paper would still be valuable but is it even a thing that people are capable of doing um of of popping out and and evaluating theories and assigning weights to their probability of being true. What what are you what are you using to evaluate the weights of the of a, that a normative ethical theory would be true? Okay, terrific. Well, you brought up I think a couple of issues there. So first, you mentioned was this idea of a regress. So <laughs> yeah. you know you're unsure about what's right ethically speaking, and I give you an account of what to do in the face of uh, um, your moral uncertainty. The issue is that you shouldn't be, you know, completely certain of my account either. Um, so what do you do then? Well, do you have this kind of meta-meta-meta-uncertainty principle where you take into account your uncertainty over how to take into account uncertainty over different moral views? Well, then you're not going to be sure of, sure of that. You're going to have to keep going further and further back up this chain. And so I think there's two responses to the, you know, to this regress issue. One is to say, yep, you just keep going up the regress until you get some sort of convergence, perhaps. Um, Or until you just don't have any more beliefs because it's just like it's too high. Um, That's kind of one way of going. A second way is to distinguish what it's kind of moral to do and what it's rational to do. And to say that what I'm talking about is just what rationally ought you to do, given your uncertainty in moral matters and empirical matters. And then what it's rational to do is just to, you know, maximize expected choice worthiness. And then when you come and say, well, what's it rational to do when you're unsure about what it's rational to do, to then say at that point, that doesn't make any sense. You've got this kind of... um, Right. You could just sort of Wittgensteinian silence. Basically, yeah. You just have to say, look, I've got to have have a fixed point somewhere. This This is where I'm staking my, you know, staking my fixed point. It, it doesn't matter if you're unsure about this. It's still the case that this is what you ought to do. But if you're <laughs> opening the door for Wittgensteinian uncertainty as a stopping point, it seems like it could be a stopping point much earlier than you would want as mm. well. I'm uncertain about whether the, to give money to a charity that I have a personal connection to because my friend works there. I, I'm just going to do it right? Mm-hmm. That's my stopping point. You know what I'm saying? So it seems like you that would be something that you would want to appeal to only as a last resort, right? Have a kind of arbitrarily chosen fixed point. 
yeah, I, I agree with that. In particular, um, it just seems for any case where, you know, you're unsure about something, and I could say, hey, you can find out <laughs> at very low cost whether this thing is true or not. Um, it seems like, yeah, it's worth your time, you know, paying that small cost in order to find out whether this thing is true. But if I say, well, there's just this fixed point and you just ought to obey the principle um, that you should maximize expected value, no matter what you think about it, then it's not the case that it's worth you investigating on this kind of view. Instead, you should just do, you know, you should just do the thing that maximizes expected value or choice worthiness. And so that kind of seems wrong. It seems like when we have this higher order uncertainty, we really do want to know what, like how to resolve that uncertainty, how to make a decision. But then there's this difficult and in my view kind of unresolved issue of just making sense of that as a full view, um, making sense of this idea right. that you can just always go more and more and more and more um, uncertain. Uh, so I do think, right. you know, the field of decision-making under normative uncertainty, it's still very new. And uh, there's, this is one of these things where I just don't think anyone has a kind of great answer. So uh, the second part of Dave's question, I, I, I think, was on the question of how do you assign credences to normative theories? Yeah. How is that even in principle possible? Yeah. So I think it's definitely going to be hard. I'm not going to say like, well, I have a 18.54% credence in Scanlonian <laughs> contractualism. Um, you know, we're not going to have kind of precise degrees of belief. Um, but it certainly seems plausible that we have at least approximate degrees of belief. So, you know, do you think it's more likely that, um, you know, singers write that we ought to give money um, to improve the world than that torturing children, tor torturing children for fun um, is a morally good thing to do. And it's like, okay, we've but clearly... Those aren't theories. Those are just moral claims. It oh, seems yeah. like what your view requires is assigning credences to entire theories. Yeah, so one slight issue with the literature is we do often talk just about in this kind of simplified way as if you've just got credences and kind of whole theories. And there are some reasons for doing that. But the fundamental view can just be anything. I can just, you know, I just divide up the space of kind of moral possibilities into the set of views on which animals matter, the set of views on which animals don't matter. And then I just have to look at my degree of belief in the proposition that animals matter or the, propositions, the proposition that animals don't matter. And then I can just do the maximize expected choice worthiness thing over that. So even though I talk about theories and I admit that's kind of confusing it's really not fundamentally about complete you know having credences in these complete moral theories um having credences just in moral claims is um is more you know is more than enough okay good that's helpful so so when you say we can have imprecise if not precise credences in moral claims where are we getting even the imprecise or approximate credences about the plausibility? More controversial moral claims, not yeah. you know, not like torturing children is morally obligatory yeah. or something like that, but 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 other ones. 
say right. about yeah. the, the the morality of abortion or yeah yeah terrific so the your precise answer to this is going to depend on what meta-ethical view you have so supposing you've got some sort of ideal subjectivist view where what it means to say that something is right or wrong is just to say well this is an action that would that my ideal self you know myself if i had you know super large brain and an indefinite amount of time to think and reflect on it on these issues what the ideal self would kind of want me to want in which case when i have um when i say you know it's 60 percent likely that abortion is permissible what i'm saying is actually well i predict that if all these conditions held and had unlimited like million years to think about stuff and um reflect and had amazing computational resources in my brain or so on 60 percent chance that i would come to want myself you know want myself to be okay with um having you know having an abortion or abortion being allowed in society a 40 percent chance that i would want myself to not want to have abortions in society so if you've got this kind of ideal subjectivist view then you can make sense of these kind of degrees of belief really quite neatly and then on different meta- other meta-ethical views, you'll have somewhat different accounts. So in, you know, if you're the moral realist, uh, then what you're doing is just actually making a guess about what moral reality looks like. And the way you form your degree of belief is just by weighing up the evidence that's there um, in front of you, where your evidence will include your kind of starting moral intuitions, Plausibly, it will include the kind of views of other people who disagree with you. It will also include kind of more abstract arguments. Um, may also include kind of theoretical considerations as well, um, like you know simplicity, explanatory power, or if we're talking about broader theories. Um, and then for other meta-ethical views, you might have uh, different accounts um, again. But I think on most meta-ethics you can still make sense of the idea of there being degrees of belief, like, rather neatly. Um, And then it seems very plausible that, and intuitive, that we do think that some things are, you know, people say all the time, like, I think abortion is almost certainly permissible. You know, there they're making a kind of approximately quantitative claim about the degree of belief. And your view doesn't depend on them being right. It just, you're just looking to give a method how to address this problem. And if the people are misguided in what they take to be a plausible or implausible moral claim, that's a separate, that's a separate question, correct? That, yeah, that's right. So you can call this garbage in, garbage out. Um, if you're you know, 90% sure that torturing children for fun is a good thing to do, then my account can still tell you what to do in light of that uncertainty. Um, there would be a separate theory that you'd want to develop to explain why that's um you know very bad degree of belief to have um but that's not part of what i'm kind of doing in this paper at least. so in in the paper um you frame this as you did now um as something like a procedure analogous to judgments under uncertainty mm-hmm. um in in the empirical domain and this is for many people, the normative framework by which to evaluate the quality of any given decision. So, you know, what's, what's the chance that it's going to rain? You know, what mm-hmm. should I, 
much when I'm deciding to take an umbrella, um, how much do I dislike getting rained on? And you plug those in. And at the heart of the question that Tamler and I are asking right now, I think, is the can it possibly be analogous um, or is it simply metaphor? Because it is so clear, right? Even the dismissal like that Tamler had to let's, you know, he's the torture case, which mm-hmm. is I'm not talking about those obvious ones. It strikes me as those importantly to build a theory, you, it, it really, it matters a great deal why we think that torture of innocent children for shits and giggles is so wrong. And so, sure, you wouldn't want to waste your time arguing with somebody who thought that was true, but presumably because there are probably reasons unresponsive at that point. But it does, there, there is no moral claim that ought not be evaluated fairly easily on this procedure, I, I guess, right? So that, that's one thing. And the, the other thing is, and I think you, you discussed this in the paper quite nicely, which is that the content of many moral theories is to find something so that is impermissible if asked to give the weight of an innocent life um people would say it's infinite mm-hmm. um you can't plug this into an equation and in fact there's you know there's good psych- psych- social psychology work by phil tetlock um, and colleagues uh that this is this is seems to be what people what people do when you ask them to put a market value on the life of their child right which Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, things like insurance companies have to come up with values for like limbs and children mm-hmm. uh, and place a value on it. But people people find it so offensive. But part of some ethical theories is to say, no, what it means to endorse my ethical theory is that this is most certainly wrong in mm-hmm. in an infinite sense. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this in the paper um, that we're talking about, it's actually in an important way, relatively limited. It just says, when theories or the views you have things in have a right sort of structure, that is when they give you kind of quantities of wrongness, such that um, mm-hmm. for any three actions, I can say that the difference in, in wrongness or difference in reason that you have um, between A and B is at least approximately N times as great as the difference between B and C. Um, on that theory, so you can get, at least have some sort of idea of like sh- quantitative strength of wrongness. In that case, then maximize expected choice worthiness. But then there's yeah difficult issues when you have something like a view that says yeah my child's death is infinitely wrong, or um, you know killing another person is in- is infinitely wrong. No amount of good kind of outweighs that. I don't find those views very plausible. Um, there's difficult questions about, well, what do you do under uncertainty? So, you know, if you think, okay, your child's death is infinitely wrong, does that mean you never let them out of the house? Um, yeah, you want to just minimize all all possible costs. That's exactly what it means, Will. <laughs> that's why my daughter is. That's why my daughter is currently locked in her room. Yeah. Okay. Well, as long as she's got computer games, I guess that's okay. But you know, but I'm in the spirit of taking uncertainty really seriously. So I, you know, I don't think you should be completely confident that you know. I don't think you should have no, zero credence in the idea that some wrongs are like infinitely great. Um, but I think we just need to hand, and I think there should be some account of 
decision-making under uncertainty in that case. But I think it should be different. And um, because it just doesn't work within this framework of maximizing expected value. Because now, like, every action I have has some probability of being infinitely good and infinitely bad. And then the whole, right. the apparatus just completely breaks. It's just suddenly, I can't make comparisons between anything. But then I have, in other work, I then kind of address this issue and actually say that, um, you know, when you've got these theories that don't have this kind of nice quantitative notion of wrongness, um, we need to do something other than maximizing expected value. It's still hedging our bets in light of moral uncertainty, so it's kind of same in spirit, um, but the precise details are quite different. Dave's, the third part of Dave's earlier question was <laughs> about how alien this is from the way most people um, go about their moral decision-making. So I remember a while ago there was a GoFundMe for Dave's ex-wife's uh, dogs needed surgery. When I was deciding whether to give to that, I I wasn't making calculations. I wasn't deciding between you know what what the probability that Singer is right that this is not the most effective um, way for me to spend my money. That that money could be doing more good elsewhere. This it, it's those that I was just okay. I have the money. I saw it on Facebook. I'm going to give some money to it. In part, I think a lot of people who act in that way, that's part that, that defines them in, in part that they are willing to a certain extent to almost unthinkingly support uh, a person that they have some sort of connection with. To what extent are you trying to reform the way we go about our moral decision-making and to what extent are you just trying to capture it in more precise terms than we may think about it yeah so i'm i'm very heavily on the reforming camp i'm definitely on the philosophy is about changing the world not just understanding it um and yeah i think you're right but i think this is part of a general issue that people just aren't very morally reflective um and i think that's a tremendously bad thing um when we look at the history of you know, human civilization, we've just committed like awful moral wrongs every single generation. And people have been perfectly happy just to accept that. And they've never really thought about the idea that maybe women have equal worth to men or people of color have equal worth to like white people and so on. People just don't, people just don't reflect ethically that much. Um, certainly not when, you know, no one's kind of challenging them to do so. It's not until they have to cancel their cable subscription that they really start questioning. Yeah, exactly. Then they've got a million different ethical arguments um, to, def <laughs> to defend their view. I mean, I guess actually, yeah. Uh, who's the old person here? Nobody has cable anymore. Uh, I do. <laughs> wow. So if you want to reform people, one of the concerns about the effective altruism movement and, and utilitarianism <laughs> more generally has been that you are taking flesh and blood human beings and trying to turn them into computer algorithms that are, and in doing so, you are stripping them of some part, at least, of, of who they are. It's not clear what the justification for that is or what standing you have to tell people 
that they should be more reflective in the way that you would like them to be more reflective in this uh, formal, somewhat formalized decision-making way. So if you're not just trying to say, hey, you're doing moral reflection like this, but here's a better way to do it that is still in line with the way you're approaching it, that's mm-hmm. one thing. But if you want to radically change the way people are engaging in it, then there's the question of, well, why why should we do that, especially if it's so alien to our the way we interact with the world right now? Yeah, so, I mean, to get a grip on this, I think I'd want to just run that kind of form of argument um, across like different periods of time and space. So thinking about this like as a response to abolitionism or something, where you're saying, well, my projects involve, um, you know, keeping slaves and so on. It's just, I don't really value this in a fundamental way and, and, and so on. It just, you know, that kind of seems absurd. And so I think we all, when we actually reflect, kind of agree that we just don't have license to just kind of choose our moral projects, um, at least when they're sufficiently important, kind of on a whim. Perhaps there are some things like, do you become a, you know, do you have a hobby of being a clarinetist or something else? It's like, well, this is your realm of the kind of permissible. Um, Whereas very many moral issues, and I think very many more than most people tend to acknowledge um, are not like that. There's just actually things that are right and wrong. And we currently have a really bad track record about getting them right. We've done really um, horrendous moral things on the basis of moral error that was just very widely accepted, regarded as common sense. And so the whole drive behind, at least for me, the drive behind both effective altruism, especially the aspect of thinking about you know all the different problems in the world and how to prioritize among them and then also of moral uncertainty and thinking the ways that i could potentially be badly morally wrong the real motivating drive for that is this fact that we've been so badly wrong in the past probably my starting moral projects are going to be fundamentally misguided they're going to be products of my upbringing my culture um whereas um there you know are things we could be doing that are you know generally morally right genuinely morally better leading to moral progress is the implication then that if uh say the the romans had they applied this decision making process to their own society they would have recognized the immorality of having slaves at that time is the implication that this not engaging it is what led to the moral atrocities of the past? Uh, I think it is true that if kind of everyone throughout history had been, you know, maximizing expected choiceworthiness rather than just following their favored moral view, I do think the world would be much, much better. And yeah, take, say, the fights in the Colosseum um, where hundreds of thousands of people um, were killed for entertainment um, over the course of many years. Now, if someone was thinking like, well, I think it's probably fine to do this because they're slaves or they've been captured, but, you know, maybe it is wrong. Maybe, crazy thought, maybe it's just as wrong to 
feed someone to lions who's not part of my community <laughs> as it is to feed a Roman citizen to lions. Well, I guess I should give that some degree of belief, you know, a few percent or so on. And if it is, then that seems to outweigh the kind of um, mild, you know, the pleasure that I get from seeing someone getting eaten by lions compared to the other entertainment that I could have been having at the same time. So I think that, you know, it would have worked in that case. Yeah, I guess my point is it's an empirical question. The question of what has been the most effective means of reforming morally abhorrent practices, greater rational reflection about moral issues, at least arguably, hasn't been as if, as effective as other as other as other forms throughout history. So so w- without having a, a strong stand on this question, I guess I'm looking for you to at least acknowledge that it is an empirical question and we can't just assume that greater moral and rational reflection during these times would have led to the reforms that w- were desirable. Okay, terrific. Yeah. So I definitely agree it's like it's very unclear why moral progress happens. Are people reflecting more? Are people, um, uh, ex- you know, actually just engage, getting different experiences, and that leads them to change their views? Is it just a mere matter of economics or technological state that means that people actually change? Um, I agree, that's like super hard and question. I'm like very interested in. Um, on the question. There's a like sub question, um, which was just if they employ this maximize expected choice worthiness idea rather than um, my fav- just going with their favorite theory, and if you allow me the premise that people people's beliefs on average are you know closer to being correct than completely false, so they're kind of like on average, at least getting somewhere in the right direction, then it's not just an empirical fact, but like a mathematical fact that someone who's maximizing expected choice worthiness is going to do more good than someone um, who is just doing their kind of favored view, at least if they've got like a wide, if we've got like a wide variety of people with different views and so on, but that are all like somewhat correlated with with the truth. In the same way as um, if you're just gambling, you're playing poker, and uh, one of you know uh, one of you is um, maximizing your expected financial payoff, um, so you're doing whatever ba- bets kind of maximize expected um, monetary gain, and the other of you just looks at what's most likely to get you some money, and just always bets in accordance with that. Well, the one of you who is maximizing expected financial payoff in the long run will do better. So that's kind of just what I was meaning with the um, earlier comment about things would have been better. I do agree, though, that like the role of kind of ethical reasoning in um, uh, moral progress um, it is certainly up for debate. I'm like relatively optimistic about it. I don't think it's in anyway the only thing or even the most important thing but i think our capacity to reason and reflect has been at least in part responsible for moral progress over time so i there is a 
a an aspect of this that I'm, I've been dying to get to him. And there is it's it's similar to um, in in some form to what Tamler was saying, but it's it's a slightly different take on it. And and it is maybe at the heart of it, it's the the distinction between what say a theory like consequentialism or utilitarianism the difference between the claim that it is a way to evaluate the the rightness of an action mm-hmm. or an outcome versus its usefulness as a guide to decision making mm-hmm. and i think in in past shows where i've been sort of critical of consequentialism um and i think this is just my fault for not distinguishing and not knowing, Mm -hmm. but I've been schooled by many consequentialists (laughs) on, on the importance of this distinction, which is that I actually have, I'm very, very sympathetic to the claims that things that consequentialists, uh, that's the way to evaluate the goodness of an, of an actor and outcome. I, what I'm very, uh, what I have a lot of problems with is whether or not, People believing that consequentialism is the right thing and using it as a guide is is the best way mm. to bring about a, a world that is that is good and and I think that part of my my confusion um, in thinking and in communicating has come from my familiarity with utilitarianism and and its family of theories coming from people like uh, you and Singer and to some extent even Josh Green um, mm-hmm. who are actually uh, who actually seem to endorse the view that if people were to calculate better the world would be a better place mm-hmm. and I think this is at the heart of what maybe what Tamler's saying and what my objections have always been that people are very uncomfortable with this and they're also bad at it. Mm-hmm. And so, so I've you know I've always thought that there's a great Sidgwick quote about secretly wanting the world not to be utilitarian mm-hmm. um, because that would make for a better world. This is all to say that I think that one of the big challenges of actually getting the world to be a better place is using the right psychological tools to make them think that maximizing is the right thing to do. Um, and one of the big objections that I hear when when people talk about things like effective altruism is of a, a, a variety of Tamler's objection, which is it seems off-putting to calculate cost and benefit to my moral actions. Mm-hmm. And they people really want charity uh, to come from a particular sometimes emotional response or reflection of of connection to another human being. Um, sometimes they want it to reflect their values. Um, and, and so they, so opening, say, uh, some, some account where some percentage of your income is, is going to the latest number crunching algorithm that, that is telling you what the best maximizing, uh, strategy is, is off putting to them because that's just how, not how we're built. Mm -hmm. Like we're not, we're not well suited for that kind of decision making, yeah, and and moreover, if we do try it, we often err in all the ways that that psychologists might expect, where you distort the probabilities and the values of future events mm-hmm. in a self-serving way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, I mean that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, firstly, the distinction between yeah the criterion of lightness and the rules you should follow. It's 
very important. So, uh, right. you know, I'm a pretty mediocre squash player. The, the aim of squash is to get more than nine points in each game and so on. The rule I follow is just hit it down the wall. And if I try and do it, follow any other right. rule than that, I do worse. Right. So I should just forget right. about trying to score points. Um, the right. other thing I should say, you mentioned kind of what we're built to do. And I think one thing yeah. that I see as a kind of win for utilitarianism is recognizing that the moral situation wherein as rich countries, rich as middle-class members of rich countries in the tw- early 21st century, it's just radically different than the moral situation that we're built for or used to, um, or we would regard as kind of normal. So kind of as a thought experiment, just think about like, what would a utilitarian say about what someone in the poorest 2 billion people in the world who are living on less than a few dollars per day, you know, what's their kind of moral recommendation for those people, which is actually much more like the normal situation for humans. And it's like pretty right. common sensey. It's like work hard, take care of your family, um, be a good person, don't steal, don't cheat. Um, you know, if you're like engaged, you know, by some community thing and you're going to work hard at that, like do that too. It's like actually really not that uncommonsensical. It gets weird when we're talking about you or I, but we're in an incredibly weird position. We're like aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. We're in the richest few percent of the that... world's population. And so I think like, um, yeah, a lot of the unintuitiveness of utilitarianism comes from um, uh, the empirical fact, not the moral fact. Right. And most there's, there's a lot of agreement as to what normative theories would, you know, would claim. Like, so it's, it's not... It's not as if in the wild people are in supreme disagreement because one of them's a deontologist and the other one's a utilitarian. Um, yeah, I actually, I think when it comes to people I like mean, you and I, there's like quite a lot of disagreement insofar as, you know, non-consequentialists. Yeah, this yeah. domain of charitable giving is probably the most, right, like the, 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 the most salient uh, way in which people might disagree. Um, yeah, that's but, right. But so, I, but like to folk to focus my question more, like I, I think so. Would you be sympathetic uh, to the view that the best way to um, to get people to donate to you know to actually maximize the good in the world would be to simply appeal to their more simple deontological intuitions? Um, I'm not sure. One kind of background thing is that I'm just generally extremely reticent about anything that's kind of disingenuous. Um, so certainly if it was yeah. the case that, and you know, even just on consequentialist grounds, so certainly if it was the case that you're misleading right. people, <laughs> then I'm just, you know, my strong default is that that's going to be a kind of bad thing to do. But of course, you don't need to, you don't need to mislead people. Um, there can be multiple, you know, like, why give away your money? I think there's two strong, strong completely independent reasons. Um, one is that we're morally required to do so. Another is this, this you know, amazing opportunity to um, have a more um, fulfilling and meaningful life. I think both of those things can be true. If you're saying a message, you can choose which message to broadcast. Um, right. Then I would have definitely been like confident that, yes, you should, you know, tailor the message, not just give these kind of rational arguments and so on. But I kind of think that the success of effective altruism belies that, at least a little bit. 
And I think that's for two reasons. One is just there's this weird class of people who are kind of like aliens who hear, um, and I'm one of them, um, who hear <laughs> these arguments and just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then they make, often make just massive changes to their life, like ten, giving 10% of their income and so on. Whereas all the psychological evidence is about much smaller amounts of money. You know, it's a few dollars or something in a, in a lab because you can't... <laughs> Right. Um, you wouldn't be able to get the statistical significance if it's pledging 10%. Then the second aspect is just a, like marketing on the margin question. So there's already huge numbers of um, organizations that are appealing to our guts and our emotions and trying to get people just to do like a little bit more. Um, the, fact that we're, the fact that we're saying, look, we're just going to give you the arguments and you can listen to them <laughs> if you want to. Um, or you can ignore them, but this is like how we're, this is how we're going to speak. Just actually makes us kind of um, much more distinctive. And so, just thinking about it from a marketing perspective, um, even if that might not be the best strategy in general, I think there's a case for it for being the best strategy for us. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, yes, the popularity and the rapid increase in popularity of the movement does belie the view that it is psychologically undoable for for at least many of us or some of us. Um, I actually, though, want to build on Dave's question, and I know we're getting short on time, about the off-puttingness of it. And I just want to mm -hmm. present to you a case. So imagine you're an effective altruist committed to the principles behind the movement and your child needs surgery. Maybe she won't die, but she'll go blind if she doesn't have the surgery. And the surgery is expensive. Maybe you've gone into banking, you know, so that you can give a big portion of your money to... Uh, so you have the money for the surgery. Now you apply your decision-making procedure to, to this question of whether you should give that money to for your daughter's surgery or whether you should give it for a much more effective use, a much you know a, a reducing suffering to a much greater degree than a single person not uh, losing their sight. So so two things. It seems like you might that decision procedure might lead you to say no, I'm not doing the surgery. Is that something you're comfortable with? And But the second part of it is, even if you think the decision procedure wouldn't lead to that, the, I think the off-puttingness sometimes comes from just the fact that you would be engaging in a decision procedure of this nature at all about something so personal that this should just be a no-brainer and not a no-brainer because you've applied a decision procedure and it... And it leads to, okay, it's permissible to, to, to spend the money for the surgery. I guess this is a version of the one thought too many. It's, no, you just do it. Not because the decision procedure said it was okay, but because she's your daughter and she needs your help. Terrific. So, um, yeah, the first thing I want to say, sorry, not terrific, but this hypothetical daughter is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> is um, <laughs> I have a terrible, terrible habit of saying terrific whenever anyone says anything to me. And uh, it really gets me into trouble. When I hear oh, I was, uh, 
I was uh, thinking, oh, great, that was a good question every time you said terrific, but (laughs) now I I have to rethink Uh, that. Okay. No, but it it is an excellent question. And I firstly just, I really want to distinguish effective altruism from utilitarianism, where effective altruism is just the idea, you know, use, you know, it's the project of trying to do as much good as possible with a given amount of money or resources, and people make significant kind of sacrifices. And if you want, you can bring in kind of Singer's principle, which is, if you can prevent something very bad from happening without thereby sacrificing anything of moral significance, um, you ought morally to do it. And Singer's principle wouldn't apply in this case. Your child going blind is clearly of moral significance. But his strong principle would apply, and that is certainly a principle you would have to think, and and, and it's one that he thinks it's true, the one of comparable moral significance and so you would have to if we if you had your way we would put that the the plausibility of that principle into the decision making process right yes that's right so i think you ought to have so utilitarianism will say and this is like you know utilitarianism being an extremely radical view would say that ultimately at rock bottom yeah everyone's life is equal the fact that someone's your daughter doesn't give um you special reason to prioritize them above someone else. Um, you know, obviously there's various things you can say about how it will affect you and like the good that you might do afterwards and so on. But kind of the core thing is just that everyone is equal. And that's a tremendously radical view. That's clearly a very unintuitive view. Um, if you come to believe that view, it's because of, um, you know, thinking about, well, we were biased by evolution and so on, etc. Um, to favor our kind of near and dear um and then um in my kind of moral uncertainty framework yeah you should place kind of some degree of belief on that very open question kind of what degree of belief you should place um but then it could be the case that given my moral uncertainty framework you do end up concluding well we should help people i should help the strangers rather than my own child but it would depend you know crucially on just how plausible do you find this view to be? And if you are, as it seems like you are, maybe find it incredibly unplausible, well, then um, it would then also, it would, you know, say, no, you ought to, you ought to save your child. And you might say, anticipating a possible response, to say, well, even the process of going through this, well, I'm going to place credences on these different views and then figure out what's right, even that is kind of violating the one thought too many idea. But there again, I'd want to distinguish between the criterion of rightness and the decision procedure, where my moral uncertainty framework is saying what is in fact the right decision. It's not making a claim about how ought you to reason. Um, So in a sense, if you just flip a coin and then pick the right option, then you've done the right thing. And so there's, uh, so yeah, so you might think, in fact, the right way to deliberate in this case is just to pick the thing that's right because you've cultivated all the right kind of um, moral virtues and so on. And so in, in that sense, there's a kind of analogy of the discussion that we had before where we were talking about utilitarianism or how I play squash, where you want to have a, a sharp division between what things are actually right and wrong and um, how should we go about deliberating or thinking. So I think these are really important distinctions to make because I think it, it, it is both to the disadvantage of consequentialists and deontologists, the thought that 
doing more to help out people uh, in the world is the purview of utilitarianism alone mm-hmm. is 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 wrongheaded, right? So you can you can be a deontologist, a hardcore Kantian, and still be convinced that you personally ought to do more. And when you decide that, it, it, to, then it's to me a no-brainer to try to find the people who might need it the most. Um, mm-hmm. That's not to say that you can't continue to help out family and friends, but yeah, but yeah, everybody exactly. could do a little more. And there's nothing in in deontology that prevents right you from doing it. So so I, or virtue so, ethics, or really or any, virtue any, ethics, or, any, any, or or no, yeah, or or no, no particular ethical theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah a exactly. particularist, a particularist <laughs> would yeah, want right. to do it, and then might be interested in knowing what the most the best most effective way of helping people is yeah and because i haven't had a chance to say it yet i i want to say like all of the work that you've been doing to is is something that should be championed and i I thank on behalf of humanity i I thank you not to kiss your ass but like i think that you're (laughs) that this is really really important work but all all that that said the, the question of the decision procedure and how people arrive at decision making I think is more important than just for what you said, right? So I think you're absolutely right that like if you can just convince whatever, you know, 1% of the 1% mm-hmm. who are rich Silicon Valley engineers to give money, this might solve a lot of the world's problems. And in that sense, you don't need to pay that much attention to the descriptive data about the average person. Um, but there is there is a sense in which I think uh, everything that Tamler w- was saying about the people's reactions and the the one thought too many that that is, I think, still important in the communication of of this stuff because it isn't. It's not just that there are certain people who are comfortable doing the calculations. It's that those people themselves, I, I think, are are just perceived poorly and mm. wrongly because of what they're doing. And so, so I'll, I want to give this, this example from, from my incoming student, Andres Montalegre, who's, who's very much into effective altruism. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was on a bus here, you know, he's a young kid, uh, from he's a student in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was here for a 4th of July weekend and here in Ithaca, you can take the bus to go see the fireworks at the lake um, and it's free. Mm-hmm. So he hopped on one of the the buses and at the end of the bus ride, the bus driver stood up and said, Hey, you guys, I, I just want to take a moment. If you, if you'd let me, um, it was something like his friend's daughter, uh, was, was in the hospital, uh, with cancer mm-hmm. and they were struggling, you know, here in the good old US of A, we don't pay for everybody's health insurance. So he said, I'd, I'd just like to, to ask if anybody would be willing to donate some money. And so he's, he was walking uh, down the bus aisle asking people to give money. People were taking out their money. And my student was with somebody else. And he just sort of very clearly said no when the guy came around. Mm-hmm. And his, his friend says, what, like, why did you say no? And his response was, there are just other more effective ways that I can use my money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 
And of course, this response was sort of abhorrent to yeah, both yeah, the person yeah. he was with and in some ways to me. And and I think this is at the heart of it. Um, and like a shout out to Molly Crockett and Jim Everett, who did research with me on, on this very question is oh, cool. that your moral deliberation in that case is signaling something that people really care about, which is what kind of a person are you? Yeah, like, yeah. Are, can I trust you? Are you compassionate and kind? And what I was telling my student is it's very, in those cases, very easy to just take a dollar out of your pocket and give it mm -hmm. because people are now going to associate that effective altruism movement with like some spectrum -y computer crunching guy who doesn't care about the suffering yeah, of, yeah, of this yeah. bus driver's daughter, right? And so it's not to be disingenuous, but there are ways of communicating the right kind of sensibility you don't have to sacrifice the sensibilities of a normal person interpersonally when you when you are judging somebody and you're judging their trustworthiness and their character you want to know that they are not that they actually are their heart is warmed by by others that they are loyal that they're kind and compassionate and that just matters because we live with other people it's not even a big moral principle it's just yeah, it's just how people will value you and respect you and what kind of a citizen you will be to all those around you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I strongly agree with that. Um, I think there's, you know, an easy risk of over optimizing in a whole host of ways. And yeah, you're like, you're exactly right. It's like giving a dollar to someone. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's an interesting question because like the reaction you get um, so I get this, um, one of the things I get this strongly with is, um, there's some people I know, um, who, uh, care immensely about kind of animal welfare, um, but then still eat right. certain forms of meat, like meat that's kind of humanely raised and so on. Hey, I'm like that. Okay, there we go. So I, Tamla, I don't understand you. Like, from my perspective, <laughs> I you just, and me both. yeah, I'm like... But uh, there's Don't a very how simple answer, mm -hmm. right? That 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 these animals are get, who are raised humanely are given lives that they otherwise wouldn't have to enjoy, and so oh. so that's I something to support. Yeah, I theoretically completely understand you. I'm kind of on board with all of the arguments. Oh, I see. Okay, um, it's yeah. a, just the psychological thing of like, right. could I myself like knowing what I know, you know feeling the way I do about like uh, animals and the way they're taken care of and so on, or the way that terrible ways they're treated, treated often, like, and thinking that they have, you know, moral dignity and respect, then just like eat, eat one. And it's like, just that would be psychologically impossible for me. Um, <laughs> or like psychologically very difficult. In the same way as like, supposing, you know, your grandmother dies, you loved her very much. Um, you know, you were there for her, like, unless she passed away and so on. And then um, you just throw it in the garbage. <laughs> and you're like, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, she doesn't care. Like, you know, or you eat her. It's just, or, you eat, or you eat her, right? Yeah, even more, di more directly. You let so, that go to waste. Yeah. So I think <laughs> that's it's good just grandmother a meat right there. <laughs> you can make a stew. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a large class of activities that are, you know, regarded as that are like importantly symbolic and like they are symbolic and that means like 
you know, you both do kind of represent the sort of person you are by doing something. Um, uh, and potentially, you know, there's a risk you do become a sort of certain sort of person by violating certain symbols. And it's at least, yeah. I think, like, as a default, like, take those kind of symbols for given, as given. There's some cases where we want to push on them and say, no, the, this symbolic action should not be symbolic in this way. You should have some other sort of symbol. Perhaps, you know, certain things of giving to charity, people regard it as like a, you know, a symbolic action. I'm actually like fine with that as long as we think of it as a different thing from giving to charity for, um, you know, giving to Making charity the world for aims better. of like trying to make the world better. But I think, yeah, just in the same way as like, yeah, treat people with respect and so on um, who are close to you. And again, yeah, it's best not to think about it in terms of, well, if I treat my close friend in a nice way, then this good thing will happen. You know, I think even from a purely consequentialist perspective, you want to just forget about that and just attend right. to your close friend's needs. Um, you know, that's, I think, probably true also for like, you know, common sense, small amounts of kindness. Dave, unless you have anything else, I think we should wrap this up. That was a great analogy, actually, the vegetarian that that sort of I had a flash of insight about how a, a vegetarian often has no real no real understanding of the position that I have and when you say mm. understanding it is this kind of, in, and, and probably views me in the way that Dave's student viewed that effective al- altruist on the bus like yeah there's something wrong with you <laughs> that you would treat a case like this in that very uh, theoretical way or that uh, very algorithmic way that you're sending yeah. off some kind of bad signal in the same way that someone who eats meat but says they care about animals might be sending off a bad signal to the vegetarian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, sounds that's, like maybe you're really more good. of an EA than you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to, I, I, I don't claim like Dave to speak for all of humanity, but I would also like to thank you for being on our podcast and and it, it really is impressive what you have done with this movement and how much you've contributed i think most people are whatever problems they have with the theoretical grounding and that's cl- unambiguously a good thing that that's happened so Right. Uh, we'll we'll put links in show notes, but but it's, it's only some small percentage of our listeners who actually go. So, what are the best places if you want to if you want to find out the best charities to donate to? Right. So, if you want to find out more about effective altruism, go to effectivealtruism.org. Um, and then for the variety of areas to donate, so both the best places within uh, global development, factory farming, uh, long term future, um, and you know promoting these ideas themselves uh you can go to the effective altruist funds um, if you google them and patreon.com slash very bad wizards yeah, um, which is no. the most which is the most effective charity <laughs> possible i i do uh, thanks for coming on i do wish we had been able to talk about the long-termism stuff but maybe that we could save that for for some other time if if you'll if 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 this wasn't a horrible experience yeah uh, if the uh, well, decision making well, procedure leads you to come on again <laughs> um, I'm sure that will. Um, I'd love to. <laughs> but thanks so much for having me thanks, on. Will. Thank you, Will.